Support for the National Writers Series is brought to you by the Wege Foundation, dedicated to developing leaders in economicology, health, education, and arts, and enhancing the lives of people in West Michigan and around the world. Welcome to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton. Benjamin Bush is best known for his acting career. He played the character of Officer Tony Caliccio in the HBO series The Wire. But Ben is active in many creative pursuits, including writing, filmmaking, photography, and stonemasonry. He's written many poems and essays for various collections and periodicals, and Ben is also a veteran officer of the U.S. Marine Corps and served two tours in Iraq. His memoir, Dust to Dust, came out in 2012. That year, Ben talked with me on the stage of the City Opera House in Traverse City, Michigan. It's great to be in Traverse City. Thank you all so very much for coming and supporting not only uh, my book, but especially uh, the the scholarship program which this uh, National Writer Series supports and the Front Street Writing Studio, which I had the pleasure of being at this morning. And my wonderful assistants, Ella and Jacqueline, uh, who are heavenly at this point. Um, what are they going to do? They've already done their thing. <laughs> you might want to move a little bit for the second part of the act, Doug. <laughs> How's it going, Doug? <laughs> so I wrote a book. So, Ben. Yeah. Um, It feels like I'm in a rock here or something. There's parts of sh- shards of pottery all around here. Um, are you really going to leave those on for the whole night? Dude, I was banned from the roller rink. Yeah, I'm leaving them on. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. I, I think everyone knows that, um, that you were an actor in that clip from The Wire. What we didn't show was an equally... Uh, amazing uh, clip of you on, um, well, that was from Generation Kill, right. but you're on the wire. You're also a photographer. You're a poet, I remember, today, with published poetry. You've written this book. Uh, you're a director. You, you were on the party of five, the television <laughs> show. Doug? What? We had rules. Yeah. <laughs> I think you broke the rules about a minute ago. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> I really have to sit in this chair. This is like being in the, the, the conference at preschool when you have to go and sit in a little. I, you know, we, I just think that, I think these things end up being a little austere. And if we just take it down into the living room a little bit, we feel I feel more comfortable. Don't you feel more comfortable with me not in a chair ready to lunge on skates? It's a there's a precipice. Here. I'm on wheels, Doug. All right. But at any time, we can bring out the chairs. I've I've had them staged on the stage. All right, no, I'm fine. Really, I'm going to go with this. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Do your worst. All right. Um, You've just finished a hundred. How many? You've finished a national book tour by car. Forty-eight states driving, and this is uh, the 121st event because I like symmetry, and and Traverse City always reminds me of that. And how many states will you go to when you're done? Uh, There are 50. (laughs) How do you can stop it? Stop at 48. It's like, you know. You're going to fly to Honolulu. I can't drive. No. Because <laughs> I would have tried. You know, I would have. <laughs> well, 
Uh, what's been going on on this book tour? Is this, do you smash pottery in every, all 40 I, states? I, you or? know, I express myself in many ways, Doug. <laughs> but uh, yeah, actually, it was, it's been an interesting tour, obviously, for many reasons. I've seen the entire country. Um, I've slept in a Prius for 33 days, which uh, is much cheaper than hotels, but you end up going to the, uh, the truck stops for showers, $5 showers in North Dakota. And I'm not gonna lie to you, there is a group of people in our country a subculture of some kind <laughs> that, uh, that has enclosed quick stop gambling facilities. And I was, I was definitely the alien in this group. Yeah. I, was, I was instantly noticeable as not being from this, this crew. And uh, you, know, you see an 18-wheeler, 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 Prius, 18-wheeler. <laughs> and I can just imagine you know, this kind of circle of, circle of people around it going, I just don't know where it came from. You know? <laughs> it's not one of us. But, uh, but I washed ashore in many strange places. And actually, the most interesting place was Texas, I have to say. Something happened there with the governor Something of Texas. happened, yeah, yeah, something happened, Doug. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> well, yeah, I have to understand that um, I don't favor sleep. I find it really inconvenient. I can't get anything done while I'm sleeping. I, it's, it's a complete waste of time. If you think about it, you know, you're you're losing huge parts of your day just lying there. And uh, I just, I have a, I can't stand that. Yeah. I can't stand being idle long, very long. And um, so luckily I had this move. I had to go from Albuquerque, New Mexico to Santa Fe, New Mexico. I had a, an interview in the morning, so I had to get there overnight. On a radio station, television? Yeah, radio station. And then I had the reading that evening. And then I had to make it to um, Austin the next day, well, Fort Hood, uh, which is 13 hours away. My event ended at about 9.30, which, and my next one began at 11 the next day, so you can kind of see how I had some friction in there. And I ran into the largest, well, not the largest, for me, the strangest, I'm in the middle of the desert, and hail started falling. I mean, hail. And this is in, you know, late April. And I'd just, I'd just been through an area, I was, you know, just in Phoenix, which was 112 degrees or something absurd. And uh, I had to drive through that, still made it to the base on time, and then I had to get to a base south of that in San Antonio. So I went down to that base. And bases are, are kind of rough if you have a book because you are the least interesting item in the store because they have beer, <laughs> there's socks, you know, there's Cheez-Its, and I got a book. You know, it's, people just walking past looking at me kind of bewildered like, man, you don't know where you are, do you? But you're it's there about important things. You're, uh -huh. you're there on the base. I feel like I should have some roller skates on. You're there on the base to, um, to sell your book. To sell the book, yeah. You go there and you do the base tour because it's got some military elements to it, obviously. And so um, while I'm in this, in the Lackland Air Force Base, uh, a place I'm glad I was never involved uh, in the military, uh, really warm, pretty sparse. And uh, I get a phone call from Governor Perry's office. Governor Rick Perry, <clears throat> candidate, presidential candidate Rick Perry, and uh, they say we would be pleased if you would stop in the governor's office before your reading tonight at Austin. I had to go back to Austin because there's a great bookstore there, and so I said, <laughs> just out of absolute curiosity, absolutely, you know, are you kidding me? So I show up, and I think it was just gonna be one of those quick meet and greets, you know, welcome to Texas, thanks for your service, happy you wrote a book, I gotta go, you know, kind of one of those quick things. I go in, and the first thing that happens is he hands me 
like an 1865 Austrian rifle and goes, feel this. <laughs> feel it. I took this rifle and went, it's, it's a fine weapon, sir. Thank you, Governor. Uh, where do I put it? <laughs> Can you shoot in your office? I, and I'm surrounded by more stuffed animals than I've ever seen in my life. It was like every creature that could be killed by way of anything was featured on the wall, along with every weapon that you could use to do it. And I knew at that very moment that I was definitely irreversibly in Texas. <laughs> it wasn't him. You know, this is a history of governors putting more things that kill on the walls and, and more things that were dead. And it was just this amazing uh, situation. We ended up talking for an hour and a half. Now, this is after his com campaign had completely imploded, and uh, he was a humble governor of Texas again. And, um, and he, <laughs> it was, I wish I had it recorded. I wish, of all the things I've ever done, that was the one conversation which uh, will we'll live. Didn't he give you something? He did. He gave me a piece of limestone with the name of a town on it. He'd written in Sharpie pen that he'd chipped off of something, probably a temple, uh, on, and he was in Israel. And this was a piece of his pilgrimage. He walked on Christ's path. You know, apparently Christ walked a lot of places in Israel. And they have these tours. And he went there on his pilgrimage, and he brought back this piece of Israel and had it in his room. And he said, you know, take this with you on your journey. And we've been talking about our passage through life and, you know, and through the world. And I said, well, thank you very much, Governor. I took that, and I, I got a governor's coin, which I was really hoping I'd be, I could abuse just one time. You know, get pulled over. You know how fast you were going, son? Oh, sorry, I was blinded by the governor of Texas coin I have here. <laughs> Can you read the small Latin in there? Um, but I had to go to New Orleans next. And I found out that I, I can't pronounce any of the, the towns I went to. I was in North Dakota. I was in Minot, because it's a French word. Minot. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I found that out on the radio. It's great to be here in Minot. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sir, I don't think you're you, aware. You, you said that? <laughs> it's how it's spelled. <laughs> I have a classical education from Vassar. <laughs> so uh, I, <laughs> I went from there to Pierre, South Dakota, which, by the way, is, is another French word. Yeah, it's Pierre. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> now. And then, you know, don't even get me started on Narlins. It's New Orleans. <laughs> Duh. Well... I, I, had some, I had some issues uh, throughout the country with pronunciation, which normally I'm not that bad at. Well, I think the governor was on to something uh, in his hour and a half with you. I want to read oh, no. the epilogue, the first paragraph of the epilogue of your book, your memoir, Dust to Dust, which this book tour was supporting, uh, for a number of reasons, which I'll talk about after I finish. But I, I thought it might be a good way into the book and to talk um, about all the amazing questions I did have prepared for this evening. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> Epilogue. I have seen cities destroyed in my life, people buried, graves dug up. I have lived outside in the elements. I know that everything is recomposed from pre-existing matter, that we are all fragments from earth and life, blown apart and gathered up. Pieces of us are from stars and meteors, the ocean, dirt, and the dead. 
We will not be able to keep these pieces either, our bodies doomed to be given back to the ground. On the hill above Sherburn, the wind, on the hill above Sherburn, the bone ash of my parents is rising in the saplings, alive again, the wind through them making the sound of oceans, their journey down the hill to the stream beginning. On the coast of Maine, they are passing into the shells of snails, the bones of fish and birds, seagulls and eider ducks laughing my mother's voice over the sea as my father makes his way into Wales. I have been presented all the evidence of every particle's part in universal transience, and I have decided to believe none of it. Ben, that's an amazing piece of writing. I would have given okay. anything to written alive again, the wind through them making the sound of oceans. That was really something. And then this, the line um, that ends with beginning, you know that line? Hmm. That was a really brilliant uh, placement of that word at the end of that sentence because it actually, you know, by the placement of that word there, the sentence actually begins even though it's ending. And you're a precise lyrical stylist. I think you're a perfectionist. And I think that um, this book is really about trying to order chaos and put a firewall against entropy. And it comes out of some very deep places in you. Um, uh, and I thought maybe we could just start by talking about that. Um, I mean, how you wrote about, uh, how you came to write this book and uh, let our audience know um, what they're in store for. Well, it's, it's hard to maintain that kind of gravitas in roller skates, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, that was hard wrought writing, getting to the end. It begins the end of the end uh, of the book. And um, I, I was talking earlier to the class in the studio today about my absolute abhorrence of disappearance. I just despise the fact that, uh, that we're brief, that everything is not permanent. If there is a, such a, if there is such a profession as permanentist, I would have been a great one. And I kind of maintain that sense that uh, the book really goes after um, the fact that, that this is the truth. These are the inevitable truths. Uh, we exist, we are brief. And, uh, and we are something larger, that we are able to continue on in memories. You know, the book began really uh, when my parents passed away. And you know, I was in my late 30s when, when this happened. And it doesn't really matter what your age is, the loss of those parents. I'd just come back from Iraq where you know, I had uh, surrounded by death. You know, Iraq and Ramadi in 2005 was not the place to go. Uh, unless Tell us just a moment. You, what were you doing in Iraq? Said okay, I was a, uh, I was a uh, Marine with uh, a battalion there in Ramadi. And we are basically charged with keeping Ramadi from becoming Fallujah with all the same conditions occurring, meaning that you know, it was rampant insurgent activity, terrorist activity, and a city that was <clears throat> full of children. And uh, how do you, where do you draw lines? Who is the enemy? What can you repair that will remain repaired? What will people eventually uh, need to see that you're seriously trying to be generous when all they see is you walking past with rifles and, um, and we couldn't secure the city. The thing that you needed for those kind of conditions to occur was, was security. And we patrolled all day, every day, but we couldn't put a person every, in every building. And so the, 
you know, the town was constantly being retaken just by the, you know, the specter of, of the other, I guess is the best way to put it. So uh, I'd lost my best friend in front of me. They just picked his vehicle, not mine. It wasn't in the end, after all those years, you know, 14 years of training, it wasn't about my prowess. It was just, you get picked. They picked his vehicle, not my vehicle, not because mine was stronger, better driven, more tactical. Uh, it's the randomness of fate, the uncertainty. When principle. you say 14 years, do you mean that you were in the Marine Corps for 14 years? 16. 16. Told. Yeah. And you, you retired as lieutenant colonel. Yes. You did. Or you, you didn't you, retire. Well, I mean, retire, retirement requires 20 years of service, so I made sure I got out before I would ever receive any benefits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I already paid for college before I joined the Marine Corps, and then I was in the Marine Corps, and I got out before uh, there'd be any reapings. And you uh, got a that. Purple Heart and a Bronze Star and a Presidential uh, Unit Citation and yeah. uh, one other uh, honor. We're going to get back to how this book came up, but I just wanted to stop so that, because... that kind of stops and backs us up a little bit, but I'd come from that environment into the death of my parents, which you can imagine is a tough transition. And I'd also come home on the very first day of my daughter's first birthday. Uh, she just turned one. And uh, is Tracy Bush in here? She is. Stand up right there. There's the Hi, reason Tracy. for it all. <laughs> Tracy's the reason I'm allowed to do all of these elaborate things, and, uh, and she makes great babies, it turns out. <laughs> Just wonderful babies. We have two daughters. And this was our first daughter, Alexandra the Great, and uh, <laughs> Kira the Fer Fierce followed her, and uh, their names are appropriate. But uh, it was, you know, I, I had seen her born, I'd seen her for about a month and a half, and then I'd gone away to war. And I came back, and, uh, you know, she was told we had some relationship. She was sweet. She smiled from behind my, my wife's legs. But she didn't know who I was. And I was her father. I was, I was the parent. And going from that, that transition of realizing that I had this large post of responsibility to fill um, at the same time as becoming an orphan, you know, was a, was, was a huge shift. It's like planets collided. Uh, the universe was, was in disarray. And so uh, it was seeking, as, as children do, my parents. You know, uh, if, if they're gone, uh, I had the child's impulse that that's impossible. You know, that's ridiculous. Your parents don't die. They're always there. And so in looking for them, I went into memory and found them. Uh, they, were, they were all there. Uh, and, and that's the thing I think I discovered most was I had never spent the time to look backwards you know, I think so many of us, and I talked about earlier today, uh, we spend much of our life looking forward. We have this trajectory, and we forget about all these, uh, all these memories that we're carrying with us of times past and all the people. So um, I went into my childhood to find a place where my parents had been most present, which was then. And when I was seven, eight, six, you know, the, my memories are richest with them because that's when you're most dependent upon them and at the same time, finding your independence. And, um, and that's how the book was really born. Was, uh, it started off me looking for them, but it ended up being I, me discovering my own journey, trying, mm. you know, trying to really begin to realize, why am I all these things that I am? Why am I a stonemason? Why do I like stone so much? Well, you know, if you see me at age five, 
the die was cast. You know, why am I an actor? Why did I seek war? You know, military service. Why do I make art? Why do I make films? Uh, all those things were tied to native impulses. But I see, you know, it's interesting. We've known each other now for, I don't know how long. Um, well, since you're my probation officer. <laughs> <laughs> we met in prison on two different sides of the phone. Yeah. So you're a writer, huh? Yeah. Um, I think the first time I met you, you were hauling, well, it wasn't the first time, you were hauling stones out of your basement. You'd come back from Iraq, yeah. and you were remodeling a farmhouse in Reed City, Michigan. You have to ask my wife about that term. On 80 acres. Remodeling is yes. Yeah. I was but, doing something to it. But you've always been drawn, by the way, the present uh, Newsweek, which is on the stands now, actually has a very nice photo um, uh, display of Ben's, um, of Ben as a young boy, they give his book a call out as one of the best books, um, uh, best book pick, and uh, you can look at it. Yeah, it's a great. <laughs> and there are pictures in there of you with a platter of trout that you caught, and yeah. you're uh, banging on some stone. And what people may not know in the audience is your father was a, v a very well accomplished and well respected novelist, Frederick Bush teacher, book critic, uh, short story writer. He wrote one nonfiction book, um, wrote a book called A Memory of War, right? Right. Um, Which, by the way, if when you look at the back of your chair, if you have a gold sticker, carefully remove it, and you will receive a free copy of a first edition of that book. Uh, giving away fifth, uh, 48 of them tonight. Um, so in your chairs, all will be revealed slowly over the evening. Be right near the top of the back center. No chaos. Wait for the lights to come on. <laughs> yeah, way to go, Ben. Um, look, did, did you tell him about the Cuisinart that you're also giving away as well? It's a knife set, and they cut yeah. through cans. <laughs> Everyone needs to cut through cans. <laughs> Looking at your pedigree, it would be hard to have said that you would have done any number of things you ended up doing. You went to Vassar. You were a studio art major where you met Tracy, who was studying uh, Russian history and Russian right. studies. Um, you go to Vassar, and then you somehow end up in the Marine Corps. If you look at Ben's um, biography, and I'm thinking, how does he go from Vassar, uh, typically all, traditionally, or was an all-women's college? Yeah, you almost said girls, didn't you? Yeah. No, 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 no. You can <laughs> tell that story. Into the Marine Corps. And then while you're in the Marine Corps, when you read your biography, it says uh, you start acting on HBO. And then you go back overseas to deploy again. Um, and at the same time, you're taking photographs and you're writing letters home to your father, and he's writing an article in Harper's Magazine, is mm -hmm. he? About what it's like to have you as a son, you, your, your father and your mother overseas. I mean, you're, you're really truly kind of a polyglot. Uh, there's, uh, when I saw you lifting the foundation of your house in Reed City, one uh, pump uh, on the uh, jack at a time, I thought, this is a very interesting, <laughs> determined guy. This is um, someone who needs to be If watched. I told you... <laughs> if he can lift his house, he might lift someone else's just for fun. 
Well, I think you came home and rebuilt that house as a way to rebuild your life. What well, do you, you know, think about that? It's, that's interesting. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, Tracy and I wanted a place that was, uh, you know, open and open space. Me probably more than she did even because I grew up in upstate New York in the countryside. She grew up in Ohio in the countryside. So it wasn't, it wasn't foreign territory for us. And we found this wreckage of a farm it was, at the time, this is on top of the bubble, by the way. Um, so we, we tried to find a place that was reasonably priced before it became half as much in value a year later. <laughs> this is how we work. You know, buy high, sell low, buy high, sell low. You it, probably got these chairs around that time, too. <laughs> Would you you know, like these are really comfortable. I'm, I'm getting used to this a lot, yeah. If you'd like the other chairs, I, yeah. can, I can have that fixed. Yeah. This... <laughs> I'll wheel them into you. I'm not going to yield. I'm not going to give you the pleasure of saying afterwards, you know, he I'm going to lift up it. your house, yeah. Doug. Yeah. <laughs> Good night. You know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, I've always been fascinated by, you know, uh, by construction. I was building forts when I was far too young, and my first and most favorite gift ever was from my parents was a box of nails and my own hammer. That's all, all it was. It was my, my Christmas gift, box of nails and a hammer. I was like, dude, this is the best. And, uh, and from then on, you know, I, I began to work in, in wood as much as stone. I used to gather stones in the field behind the house and build my elaborate uh, breastworks around my fortifications which was all to, to defend me from no one. But, uh, but, you know, I had that sense of purpose, like this place must be defended, I must build the outpost. And uh, everywhere I went, it was like, oh, where's Ben? Oh, <laughs> where do you think he is? It doesn't matter where we are, even if it's a friend's house, he's out building a fort for them. You know, I mean, Nicholas Del Banco still remembers, <laughs> you know, me hitting his place in, in uh, Connecticut. My father was teaching at, uh, at, at a writer's program. And I just disappeared and came back at the end of the day and there was a, a wooden teepee out in the back of his yard. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Great having your kid around, Fred. Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was just one of those things, and, uh, and I think the house had the temptation. I kind of, I underestimated, and Tracy will reinforce my, uh, my power of underestimation is, is limitless. <laughs> but I kind of I rolled in and looked at this. The house was square. It was straight, and so I did what I do best, which is, How hard can it be? <laughs> there's no insulation. There's no electricity in the upstairs. You have to unplug the refrigerator to turn on the stove. We have two fuses for the entire house. The downstairs is five feet of essentially rotten sludge, which used to be lumber, and, uh, and someone's clothing. The barn is collapsing. And um, yeah, we can afford it. <laughs> and uh, I always have these visions, which is another problem. While I'm driving, no, uh, you know, I, I, I saw it whole. It's kind of how I see mm -hmm. films. It's how I see sculpture. It's how I see a lot of things. Is that I see it, I see it completed, and I just crush the time required for it to arrive at that condition. So it's you know, well, this place is going to be amazing in 78 years. <laughs> you know, this is. <laughs> A sarcophagus in our cellar, you know. I've been chipping away at it the whole time, so I can just lie down when the kitchen's finally done. <laughs> um, 
So, yeah, you know, I, I, I feel that taking away that which is broken and restoring things and building things and working with real materials, I love the fact that the house was built out of the trees they cut on the land in the 1890s, you know. The good wood went to the barn, the bad wood went for the house. And that's why it was so strong, was that it has one and a quarter inch thick boards on both sides. It didn't need to be insulated. It's like, if it floods, I have an ark. <laughs> You know, just gather the girls and the dogs and the chickens in there and we'll float towards Traverse City and run against a hill somewhere and we'll live there. You know? What do you like, what, when you were little, what was telling you to go build that fort? I have you know? no idea, just actual native impulse. Um, but, you know, I, I was talking earlier about my obsession with stone and where it comes from, and I didn't realize it until I really looked back in this book and what I hope as readers go through this book, they do the same things in their own life. Uh, I, I break up the, the, land into, the landscape into its elements. I go into wood and soil and metal and stone and uh, blood and ash, the things that kind of compose us and compose our environment. And I take each one from childhood to adulthood, kind of following why that's important to me, why it was important to me. And I'm a visual writer, so I'm trying to let you see what I'm, what I'm seeing. You know, I'm trying to give you my eyes for the book. And what I'm hoping is not so much that you, you learn all about Benjamin Bush, but that you understand the messenger enough to see how my message is in your own journey, how you can see things that I'm talking about in your own life. If I'm writing about a river, it's not my river. You know, to the reader, it's your, it's your shore now. Um, if, it, if I'm writing about a forest, that's the forest you know. And if I can set you back into that environment, if I can kind of reawaken you to the importance of the environment that you, you have around you or, or from your past when it was strong in you, uh, then that's really the purpose of the book, is to reawaken that sense of, of our own journey. Because like I was saying earlier, we don't really look backwards. We're always looking forward. Mm -hmm. We have a shopping list. We have places to go. We have to do something. And we forget that uh, the thing that we just saw on the ground that reminded us when we were happy at age eight, which was brief, that memory just kind of goes past. We have it. It's there, it's a trigger, but it doesn't take us all the way back because we don't stop. And what this book does is it stops you. It says, okay, go there, spend time there, live in that moment for a bit because it's rich and you'll discover things about yourselves that, uh, that although are, seem, would seem obvious, uh, you haven't taken the time to, you know, to look at. Hmm. Um, there's a section in here these chairs are awesome. <laughs> I should have got 600 of them for you. I feel it. <laughs> While I look for this page, could you provide some musical mm. accompaniment? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> the 80s are strong in me. <laughs> you know, it's true. I wanted to point out, what happened to your ponytail when Ben... Shut okay. Uh, I, they're groaning in the audience. I feel so sad right now. Ben came out of the Marine Corps and had... <sighs> Uh, if you've ever seen the television show The Wire, he plays a, an uh, officer, Caliccio, and it's got a weird uh, buzz cut. 
very strange. I can't imagine Tracy going grocery shopping with you. Tracy was not a fan of, the, of that haircut. Yeah. Or of Calicio, because sometimes Calicio came home from work. <laughs> and uh, he'd forget that he was not Calicio anymore because they'd called cut. And uh, Calicio would walk around the house as Calicio. <laughs> and poor Tracy was like, you need to stop that. Well, you, you, you said earlier or another time that the, the anger that this officer felt dealing with these endemic problems in, in Maryland, uh, yeah. uh, uh, violence, robbery, it sounds an awful lot like a war zone. Yeah. And you had channeled a lot of that uh, post-Iraq stuff into that character. Is that true? I would say I have. I, mean, I think your, your experience always informs your work, no matter what your experiences are, no matter what your work is. Um, and I had just come back in the first tour of 2004, where, uh, where unfortunately I had done my best acting. It was all in Iraq. You know, be Im immensely, infuriatingly frustrated all the time and never show it, because that would be insulting. To who? To the Iraqis, you know? No matter what was happening, uh, it, it, it incensed my sensibilities uh, most of the time, not, not, because, uh, because, not because they were crazy, because it was their cultural predisposition to react in certain ways uh, to what we were doing, which wasn't helping my situation at all. Mm -hmm. And also, I had, uh, you know, we had orders to do things which were, you know, increasingly silly. You know, Bremer was giving us, you know, debathification papers and telling everyone to, you know, sign them so they can be part of the new Iraq. But that was Iraq. I mean, basically, making me sign paper, I have, have these guys sign papers that said, I, you know, I renounce who I am so that I can be the new person you wish I was. <laughs> I'm like, you know, this doesn't come off well at all to me. You know? we're, we're not supposed to be an imperial army, but we're feeling an awful lot like, uh, you know, like we're, uh, we're, we're slapping templates over things. And I'm not a template guy, as you can tell. I, you know, I, I like the fact that the Marines work with field initiative, which means you have a commander's intent, and how you make that happen is all to, up to you. Uh, which I appreciated, and I took it even further. <laughs> Some things the commanders didn't intend. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I just looked at it, I looked at it like a, like a town, like a, like a village. And this scene, this clip that we saw, tell us about that. You're playing a... Um... Yeah, playing an executive officer. Um, I was a commanding officer of a light armor reconnaissance company in the invasion, which is 25 light armored vehicles with main... Um, turrets on them with 25 millimeter cannons and recon scouts in the back and 150 marines and we were just given a, a, a kind of an absurd collection of missions you know uh, go forth find weapons of mass destruction capture the 55 most wanted um, seal off and isolate capture any terrorists uh, if you can find them oh by the way while you're there win hearts and minds, reestablish critical infrastructure, including water, septic, you know, telecommunications, uh, rebuild clinics, rebuild schools, focus on children, uh, reestablish governance by whatever method you feel necessary, and, uh, you know, stabilize the region. We're going to Baghdad, but you do that. On the f <clears throat> this is... This is the Iranian border where there is nothing except, you know, the dust of whatever he dumped on the Kurds, uh, which I'm sure I'll benefit from at some point. But, uh, you know, that was, that was the region. You know, we weren't allowed to talk to the Iranians, and they were right there, 
because we had no dip diplomatic ties to Iran. So here I was in charge of a, an area, a border, I had a border space on Iran of 150 miles. That's just the border space, not including the space behind it. And I had 150 Marines. Now, if you work out the calculus of death there, uh, it's pretty hard to, uh, to run a, a, a war. And nobody cared about it because it wasn't considered you know, contested territory. They were areas that even Saddam didn't care much about, mostly mud hut you know, villages. And that's where I found myself. And um, you know, there mm -hmm. I was, trying to redefine what, what is it? What is democracy? And how, how do certain elements relate here at all? How can, I, how can I even be relevant when in fact I'm culturally I'm not? Politically I'm not. And I'm charged with this huge list of things, but there have been no post hostilities plan, as you probably know by now. So there was no supplies coming. It was like, go forth and, and fix 1970s Soviet pumps. I'm like, all right. Has anyone got a 1970s pump manuals or parts? <laughs> We should probably call the Soviet, oh, <laughs> crap. So, you know, we had these huge issues, and of course the place began to realize uh, that it was actually without any, you know, governance. There was no, there was no, uh, no authority, other than guys running around with nothing to offer but, uh, but bullets, if you'd asked. So, um, so that was, that was my, you know, my first few months, and we never knew if we were staying, we, we had, and I have in my, my journal of just trying to keep track of things, we had uh, like over 90 uh, departure dates, which is hard to tell Marines or their families. You know, so I'm like, we're not leaving. <laughs> we're never leaving. Don't, uh, don't even think any of this is real. And I just buried most of that information because it was stupid to tell people. You know, if, you get a, if you get a date fixation on the military, like we're out of here in four weeks, you can survive anything for four weeks. But four weeks in one day, Oh, well, all hell breaks loose. You know, you got to kind of just say, listen, we're, we're in this until we're not. And um, so those, the situation was, was rough. So, and I was frustrated all the time because I'm dealing with villagers. And, of course, they're asking me the same questions uh, mm -hmm. anyone would ask. So when are you going to get Saddam? And what are you, what are you prepared? How long are you staying? Because last time we told them, you know, we're going to get Saddam in 1991. We, were, we fought for 11 days. We didn't take out Saddam. We humbled his army. And then everyone we said, hey, rise up and, and revolt, was in the mass graves that I found. The villagers would point me out to. And I was like, well, why? I was thinking to myself, why won't anyone lead? Why can't I find a leader here? And they're like, dude, <laughs> the last people you asked to lead, I got to tell you, dust to dust. So I could go on for hours and hours, but I'm not going to, because mm -hmm. this isn't about that. And the book doesn't, you know, but it I wanna talks know, about it briefly. But I want to know why you joined the Marine Corps coming from the parents you had who were not supportive of that decision mm. at first, and how you get from being a studio art major at Vassar. There's a lot Go more studio art majors running the military than you think, Doug. <laughs> the uniforms are much better looking now. The PowerPoints are becoming actually exquisite. I probably shouldn't mention the shadow command that I've... Uh, I've been part of, but uh, I, you know, I had the impulse. I had it since I was little. My parents uh, at first tried to, uh, to steer it clear, as parents do, and parents are charged with one thing in your entire life, that is to protect you from harm. The military is charged with one thing, which is to deliver you to it. 
And your parents don't get a vote in that. They're kind of like, well, you know, I can protect you if you're at the house and you're gonna fall down the stairs, maybe. Um, but I can't protect you in Iraq. I'm out of the scenario. I but do not have a, a part in, in that. So, what was the impulse, though? You know, uh, I was chasing endangerment much of my life. You know, it was, it was just the uncertainty of all that, the, the physical test of, and, and on, a, on a simple, childish level, is are you brave? That's, that's the ultimate small question, which is a huge question and doesn't even need to be answered, but some people feel they need to find out if they can. Um, but it's that, it's that incredible uncertainty. War is absolutely uncertain, everything about it. And did you, Do you feel you were asked that question, and did you answer it? Ask. Uh, Are you brave? Um, I don't know. I, mean, I wasn't afraid. But there's different kinds of bravery, you know. Um, I didn't stop the war. That would have been pretty brave. Just take my unit and turn around. <laughs> so you know what? Eh, I'm tapping out. Uh, I led them into war. And then once I knew that we were fighting a war, a lost war, really, in, in Iraq, <clears throat> things have changed now, obviously, but at the time in 2005, you know, I went back. In knowingly, you know, this was, this was, we weren't looking for weapons of mass destruction, we were doing something else, and I went back because my Marines were being sent, you know, Marines were going, and that's why I had to leave when I came home pretty much cold when, I, you know, I saw my daughter, and I, I realized that uh, my attraction to it was almost as, as large, if not larger, than anything else in the world, and I can never duplicate it again, you hear veterans talk about that all the time, you know, you can't create those conditions doing anything else except you know, waking up in the morning and jumping out of a plane. You know? um, and uh, I'll never be part of anything quite that large again except what I hope is art. Art's larger than everything if you do it right. So, um, so I'm fighting it out there. But I, mm -hmm. just have, I, have a, uh, you know, I had that in me and I think, I think my life required the confrontation with the most dramatic form of uncertainty. To, to risk everything is quite a risk. Um, you, were, you got wounded in that first deployment, came second home. Second deployment. Okay. Yeah. So you went there, came home, saw Alexandra, who's one. Saw her born, and then left. So she wasn't, she wasn't in the picture until, <clears throat> uh, until just before. What made you then finally decide I'm out of the Marine Corps? She's one year old, and she doesn't know who I am, and, my, you know, and then my parents die within that same right. period. And I, I just knew um, you know, the, the danger of other, uh, the other danger of military service is at some point you become good at it. I mean, really good at it. Dangerously good at it. And you feel that there's something you have to offer uh, that somehow, even though we're all not unique, we're all uniform in the service, that somehow I could break the code on on you know villages in Iraq, and that would make me necessary. You know we all want to be necessary somewhere, but uh, but I wasn't. You know, how do, how does art replace that uh, tension that you found in the combat zone? It's how completely it's a complete uncertainty. I started writing this book with no idea how to write a book. I had to say things which were huge and put them in a certain order, which was, you know, which was going to articulate large motions of, of the universe to people I don't know. Um, 
and I, I don't even know if I did. What made you think you could write this book? You'd never I written don't. it? <laughs> what? I don't. What? I didn't. I mean, I, I, uh, I, like I said earlier in, in the class today, you know, I, I, I use all these different media, um, all these different genres because I'm never satisfied with one to express all the things I want. Uh, I, I, sometimes a, a photograph tells everything, you know? Um, I, like, I like the unfinished picture. I like the fact that I'm tearing something out of an endless image. I'm choosing those corners. That's all I'm giving you. And you've got to imagine everything else. You've got to imagine why I chose that. You have to picture for yourself the context that that thing uh, lives within. And then I put another photograph next to it if it's a show, and those two are going to talk to each other because they're next to each other. There's automatically going to be a dialogue. So I have to choose that image. And then film is just that 24 frames a second. I'm choosing this image and this scenario to go next to this one, which will come in and continue. It's a story. It's a visual experience in, in that case. And um, so I, you know, I work with those two mediums just, mm -hmm. just because they answer certain mail. But, um, but I couldn't do that in this case. I, I, wor I work in poetry as well. Um, can never tell if you do any of these things well. That's the, that's the other problem, is once you finish something perfect, you have no idea if it's any good. <laughs> like, it's perfect. And you look at it a week later, and you're like, dude, what? You know, obviously the gin was speaking <laughs> that evening, you know? Damn juniper berries. And then, um, and then there's certain things that poems can do. As you know, you start off at, at Interlochen as, uh, for, with poetry in Iowa Writers' Workshop with poetry. Poetry is a powerful thing because you're trying to do the absolute most with the fewest words possible. Um, so it really, you really have to think about everything. You, the way you organize, the way it flows, the way you break it up. And I write kind of narrative poems. All they are are essentially like three or four sentences. But I change the order of the sentence so that you are always looking at a particular word and it emphasizes that, that word in a way that you would never notice if you were just reading it as prose. If it was just a sentence, you'd read it, and it would be a good sentence or a bad sentence. But as a poem, you can take one word in that sentence and just slide it down so your head stops on it for a moment. You're like, wow. Now it becomes about that word for a bit, mm -hmm. you know? And um, I, could, I could read one later to kind of emphasize how that works for me. Um, it what says certain things. And then, and then for, for me, it really ended up being the, the book was born because I couldn't use any of those other things that I work in to do something like this. I couldn't give you my eyes from when I was age seven because uh, I'm not seven. You know, I, I can't, to do that would be to recreate uh, a different person to show you. I can't show you me at seven. I can only give you this, this language from that time. I can't make a movie of it because then I'd have to cast a seven-year-old who isn't me. You know, I'm already lying, you know, which is what film does wonderfully. So, um, so the book began to, to be born because it was the only way I thought that I could really say these things in an articulate way directly to a reader, paint that picture um, that they would take and recreate in their own minds uh, that would have a life larger than my own. Do you have a model uh, when you're writing this book? Is no. there authors you like? Do you, do you read a lot? <laughs> he asked. Doug, you know, um, it's not my strong suit because I'm, I'm busy, really busy. I would like to have someone running next to me reading to me you know, just, you know, while I'm stacking rocks. You, know, you can get books on CD, but you know, I, I can't afford them. So I'm, 
And, and the car I was driving with didn't have a CD player anyway, so it was just me talking to myself the whole time, which Doug knows I can do for days on end. <laughs> and not remember any of it, but, but I'll, I'll keep on going. There'll be something interesting happening in my own head. Yeah, but I asked that question because you definitely um, are a prose stylist, and I just wondered about the relationship you had with your father, Frederick Bush, who was a very demanding writer, demanding yeah. of other people, had um, very high standards. You, so you, you've absorbed, you, well, you've, you've read something. And I think the audience might be interested because we have a lot of writers here. Yeah. Um, just that process of reading and composition. I, met, I remember the evening you started this book. <laughs> you left our house in Traverse City and you said, oh crap, I gotta go write a book. <laughs> and you literally got in the car and drove to Reed City and started working on it that night. Yeah, that's how I do. Yeah. It's, uh, that's how I do. I... Had you thought about it? I mean, did you, that, sent, that epilogue I read earlier did you revise that at all, or did it come out that way? I can't remember. Um, you know, I, I wrote under the worst conditions possible because I, you know, I kind of believe in that Spartan plan that uh, he who trains in the harshest school uh, will, will produce the greatest skill or something. And uh, we have an unfinished living room, which is unfinished because I haven't finished it, uh, which is next to our unfinished kitchen, which is unfinished because I haven't finished it. Um, then I have a wife who who sees both these things unfinished and has questions. <laughs> but it was in this space, which was just kind of this dark, after the girls would go to sleep, and it was about 10, 11 o'clock at night, I would recede down into this space because I knew I was, you know, I, I, had, to, I had to progress the work, which I was doing. And, and I can't work very well when it's sunlight because I can see outside. And if I can see outside, there's stuff that needs to be done. Digging and looking for rocks. So uh, it's hard for me to, to sit there. I did it for a few days, obviously. But mostly, I had these big 4 by 8 sheets of pink insulation for a project that I hadn't finished in the cellar. And um, I put them around me on this table, which had piles of scraps of stuff that, you know, just writing on receipts and whatnot. It, something would come to me at some point. I knew I had to write it down because I can't remember anything. Uh, I have no short-term memory at all. It's kind of amazing. I wake up every day, and one, you know, Tracy tells me who I am and where I'm going. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's great. Um, but I can remember my, when I was like seven with absolute clarity, which is very strange. But um, I'd go down there, and I'd turn on this light, which was a, just a terrible bent light, and I sat in a very uncomfortable chair on purpose because it keeps you on edge. And... Um, I would put the book up around me. I would just stack a ticket in a way with um, pins into this insulated pink. I mean, it was like I was inside of a whale. I'd been, <laughs> I'd fall into the womb, and it ended up being a very literate womb. And, and I, I began to form the chapters that way by making them into a line. And then the next tier down of pages was the next chapter. And I had to do that because I'm, as a visual artist, I do the same thing with photography. Whenever I'm setting up a show, I kind of have to lay out the pictures and look at them and figure out how they relate. And when I do I do with a film, you know, you're kind of imagining how these pieces are going to progress, and I have to kind of put them up in my head. I don't see things in a computer. I don't see things in a pile. I see them up. And by doing that, I could, I could see where I'd been redundant. You know, 
know, this part is like this part, even though stone and soil are different things and I'm doing different things in them, the message in these two sections is the same. I do it better here. This one goes. And I started off with 12 chapters. There was light, there was underground and dust. Underground and dust became soil. There was ice, which broke up and kind of floated into a couple other chapters, like water and, and stone, uh, because ice is like stone sometimes. And uh, wind, which just blew away entirely. And <laughs> really a substance. You know, I was getting down to really the hard elements in the end. And, um, <clears throat> and it was in that process that actually uh, I ended up writing Bright at the same time near the end of the book. Uh, which you remember when I wrote Bright. Which, this is how I work, and Doug can tell you stories which actually have legitimacy because he was witness to We were it. speaking at a writer's conference, uh, Ben, myself, and uh, the novelist and nonfiction writer Philip Caputo, who was a past guest of the National Writer Series. And yeah. Phil and I were about to go trout fishing the next day, fly fishing. I was desperate to join them. And uh, we were going to bed early, and Ben said, well, I have a movie to write. So he ate a bowl of peppermint stick ice cream. Vanilla. Vanilla. Which I found out if you put Ben on sugar, you don't want to be in the same room with him. <laughs> it's like he's on roller skates, but he doesn't have the roller skates. <laughs> <laughs> and you went upstairs and you wrote the movie. Yeah, I did. And you filmed it. Yeah. But it was I, due, we, I had the idea, and I'll tell you, the scenario for that was... I was supposed to do another film, which is a comedy in L.A. I'd already location scouted. I'd already got my whole team together and, and, uh, and actors ready for it. And it was just, it was canceled. It was, it was killed off as a project. And I got on a plane thinking, there's no way in hell I'm not shooting this movie in two weeks. So I have to shoot another one. And I just wrote down on a napkin from American Airlines, like three things, three character things. You know, got a guy. He's unable to, to progress from his childhood. He's being guided by a blind man, and the kid repairs lights, always surrounded by light. And it was because I'd killed off my chapter bright, and I had, or light, and I hadn't even really thought about the fact that they were cross-pollinating all the time. I'm writing a story about my childhood, which I'm trying to return to, which I also haven't progressed from very much. <laughs> you know, the, uh, and, and this guy is, uh, is, child, is parentless, which... I was, and uh, you know, light, this, this idea of time in the universe, everything defined by, everything we see is defined by light. It's true, you know, the, the, the protagonist in the movie Bright is an orphan. Yeah, we, Do, think. we never really find right. out, he's just kind of discovered. But, um, but yeah, that, that, that's the movie, and I had two weeks to put together an entirely new movie, and it's one of those rare moments. Normally, I struggle over a movie forever, because I don't enjoy writing the movie. I enjoy seeing the movie <laughs> in my head. I'm a very visual person, so uh, writing it is actually much harder. And do you enjoy one, writing? I mean, do you, th do you like writing? Not so much. No. I, <laughs> no, tell me what you really think. I mean, um, Yeah, not so much. I mean, it's, it's really hard. Because, you know, I, I, you worry always that you're never right. <laughs> your, whole, your whole profession is me going, I don't know. You can read it if you'd like. So how is it different, though? I think I'm done. How is it different, Ben, than being behind the camera? I mean, the voice of this book, Dust to Dust, is a very elegiac voice. It's a lyrical voice. It's a very 
attentive voice. It's a beautifully written book, and it's a really wonderful experience to read it. But so I'm wondering. It's a very visual book. It's a very visual book. What is the experience like of then being that character on this on that screen in the clip we saw? How is that artistic experience like the writing experience? That was actually also not so enjoyable because uh, to play that character, I was I was fighting fighting two things. One, it's just me because I was that guy. You know, basically, I've been a Marine commander and I've had to jump into those kind of situations. And you're putting on an act you've actually experienced. So everything feels false automatically. You're, you're fighting yourself not to overact it, and at the same time, you're worrying if you're underacting of any kind because you know, it's, it's really hard to play yourself. You know, uh, this is easy, but you know, uh, that's, the difference is when you're creating a character, when you're, when you're required to have something that people are performing from, uh, you always worry that you're not believable. You know, wrote a whole book. You know, it's nonfiction. It's really true, as far as I know. Is it believable? Is, is any of this, uh, is any of this good? The, the, the worst part is, as an actor, you know, as, as, a, as a director, I have real clarity of vision. It's where I'm most comfortable. You know, uh, in the orchestration of, of troops, I'm very comfortable. It's just, I've, since I was a kid, organizing wars behind my parents' house to be horribly killed in front of them over and over again, which is their nightmare, of course, but I don't realize that till looking back from now, that you know, I was essentially rehearsing my death in front of my parents every day of my childhood, while it was their one job to keep me from being harmed. You know, it's just torturous. But, um, but that, that, that idea of what, how much of it is, is put on, hmm. uh, is, does it feel believable? And as an actor, when I'm directing, I, you know, it's like taking a photograph. I'm just like 50 millimeter lens on sticks right here. I see from here to here, everything else doesn't matter. And we want to have movement from here to here because the next scene, we're going to have that continue with a slight camera move. That just comes to me almost instantaneously. I was able to you know, write and direct a film within a couple of weeks. And it looks like my photographs if you watch Bright, which anyone who buys the book tonight will get a copy of it. Um, it feels very much like my photography because it is. I even shot it with a film camera with 30 grand worth of Zeiss Prime lenses on the front of it, so it looks really sexy. Wait, so, if so what about the movie? You said if people buy the book, they get a copy of Bright? They do. Wow. Do you have any more bonus prizes on anyone's chair you want to give away? Or? I do. You do? The gold, of course, is for my father's books. Uh, and there are 48 of those. The silver, however, are for, if you read the book on page 86, I start talking about my coin collection where I first discovered that 1943 was the first and only year that uh, the US government issued steel pennies because they were using all the copper and brass for copper and brass. You know, it was a war on. And it went to bullets and, uh, and pipes for ships. So for that one year, they just zinc plated a bunch of steel pennies. And then they went back to them in 44 and 45, back to copper. So 200 of you have mm. silver stickers on your chairs, and you will receive a 1943 original and, uh, and circulated uh, steel penny from the war, which relates directly to the book. So that's another little thing. 
How do you know this stuff? You I mean, you I, pay attention. I, <clears throat> you you got to pay attention. You pay attention to everything, you eventually know an awful lot of nothing much. But somehow, there's a reason you pay attention to certain things. And I paid attention to metal. So when I saw metal, I took note. And I was interested, so I looked it up. You know, and if you ask me, my favorite thing is to go into a place, not, I'm, 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 and I, I go off again on, uh, I, don't, I don't normally uh, you know, disappear into a book. I usually disappear into an elder. I'll just walk into a place where there's someone who's been doing it for a long time, and I say, wow, what are you doing, how do you do it? And within 15 minutes, I know everything that could be taught other than the muscle memory of doing it myself. And that's how I've learned most of everything I know. By watching. Watching. I'm a visual learner, I'm a visual writer, I'm a visual filmmaker, I'm a visual person. My, my eyes are what I have, my strength in. And that's why I worry about doing things which aren't, aren't of my eye. You know, photography, that's entirely just me and my eye. I just give it to you. This is exactly what I saw. No kidding. You know, film is, and then I made it up, but it's still exactly what I saw. Taking it to poetry and prose is scary, because you're like, I'm seriously writing what I see, but I have no idea what you're seeing. Am I doing it right? I don't know. You know, how does it relate to your own baggage? That's the only question that really exists for the reader. Because what you bring to the book is going to have very much uh, to do with how you see it. So um, mm. that's where I'm far more uncertain with, with, uh, with those language elements. Because you always, a photograph is a photograph. Once it's taken, it's done. But, you know, language, you're always second-guessing yourself. Could there be a more perfect word? Um, my voice emerged because I think there's a, I just have a, 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 you know, you asked about influences, and obviously I have read things, you know, but, uh, but not a ton. And uh, I've been privileged to read some good things. Such as? In Harm's Way by Doug Stanton. Oh. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. We can go. It's been nice to see you. Which is actually a gorgeous book and about a horrible thing. And it's very visual for me. Um, so... You know, I've, I've read a lot of, you know, I've read A Rumor of War by Phil Caputo, which mm -hmm. is a landmark Vietnam War book. Um, and when I was a kid at some point, they made me read Great Expectations. I remember something about a cake. And it was, you know, not pleasant ever, except for the end. Um, read, you know, Red Badge of Courage, coming through high school, you know, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. I don't know why these books were selected, you know, just Scarlet Letter, uh, you know. So, I, you know, I came up with a lot of that, and mostly what I've, I've been reading recently has been shorter works, um, a poem here or there. Pick a poem every, every couple of days. And it's because it's, it gives me that small piece, and I've got to think all the way around it. And it's right there. Usually I get a page to marinate in. Um, I want to ask you a question, though, about acting just for a moment. I mean, how, yeah. how did you, what, you woke up one morning and said, I'm going to be an actor, and then you get a job on the West Wing, on Homicide, on Party of Five. Um, we had rules. Yeah. <laughs> how, take us through that. Uh, we know I'm, I'm more of a fan of pretty much anyone than me, so it's, it's great to go hide in someone for a while. That's what I like about acting. But had you studied it? No. 
I haven't, I haven't studied anything. <laughs> you know, I, I studied on war, but really what I took to it was stuff that I had native impulses for refined by, you know, artillery tables. Uh, all the movement of people and ground was natural to me. You know, the, the right. terrain. But they give you the script, you got your, and yeah. they say, go ahead, read. What do you do? I mean, for the audition itself? Yeah. The audition's a miserable experience, by the way, if, if you haven't done it. Any actors in here? So no, sorry there really aren't, because if there were, believe me, they would have told you. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actors will always tell a director they're an actor. Um, but, you know, uh, give an example, and this, this, this is not, uh, not in the book, it's the after effects are, because I, I talk a little bit about playing, uh, playing the part in Homicide. But the audition for Homicide was quite small. I already played a corpse once, which did nothing for my career although I played it as seriously as a corpse can be played, <laughs> which is pretty serious, you know. You gotta really, <laughs> you gotta be in it to win it. No breathing, nothing. Um, but I've been on the show as a corpse, and it was the only show in the area, it was Homicide Life on the Street, cast by Pat Moran, who's a wonderful casting director. She just kind of remembers everybody, and um, I don't know how. She's like, oh yeah, I remember you from 37 years ago in that taco ad. You were good. I believed you were hungry. You know, <laughs> she's just one of those people that has this incredible. Uh, did you do memory. commercials? I only did, I did one commercial. That was it. What was it? I, I don't know. I was Come on. Maryland Lottery, and the I Maryland. played a Turkish dancer. <laughs> and I'm so glad no one's ever found it. And I did one infomercial like for how to use your phone or something. It was awful, just absolutely abysmal. Yeah, I got my new phone. What do I do next? You know, it's one of those terrible you know info ads that every company gets to teach their their entire staff, how to use their new stupid phone. But you end up, you know, you can only work with the material you have, and uh, there's certain expectations about that genre. But, you know, to do this part, uh, finally there was a part that they actually called me in for, that maybe I could, you know, I, I, I fit a certain profile. It was a serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> and Pat, Roman, Pat Moran remembers everything about people. Hey, you were a great corpse. Um, let's put you on the other side of that situation. And so, uh, I got called in with 20 other people, because they all look like me. You know, they're, they're looking for a certain kind of group. You know, white male, dark hair, dark eyes, tall, psychopathic, maybe. And uh, all it was was the audition, the first audition was one line. And the line was, nice, nice to meet you face to face, uh, Detective Shepard, nice to meet you face to face. That's it one line to work with, and 25 of us all sitting there pretending we're not rehearsing a line in the same room while people go into the room down the end and, you know, they do the line. So we're all sitting there trying to rehearse because we just got the lines walking in. And like, how many ways can you do that? You can do it a million ways, actually. The, the worst are the one-liners because you're thinking, how am I going to make this moment matter? <laughs> and to the casting agent, it doesn't matter. You're asking, would you like fries with that? <laughs> just ask. You don't matter, it's the person, the person you know, that you're working with is the star. You're in there for two seconds, we just need some bodies. Well, in this particular one, uh, the, the serial killer is finally caught, and he's, you know, Detective Shepard is the, the star of the show, comes up and you know, I have to interact with. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, uh, I'm a serial killer, I've been caught. <laughs> I know, I guess I'm a cocky serial killer. Why wouldn't you be? Um, but I've been caught, which makes me a little bit disappointed, you know. 
But, uh, but I'm going to go weird on this. I'm just going to, you know, and I, I kind of did this surreptitious Detective Shepard, you know. Nice to meet you face to face. You know, this little simple, I'm a creep. And, ha <laughs> <laughs> you know. Serial killer right here. And so I get called back, and I'm, I'm totally excited because you, you know, barely, the chances of getting a call back are pretty rare. And I come back, and there's seven of us. And this time, they still don't tell me anything about what's going on in this episode. You know, I've only seen that one line. Like, you're the serial killer. Great. Do I have any other lines? Nope. <laughs> Did, oh, okay. I mean, you're doing it on the Internet. You're killing women live on the Internet. Oh, it's a growth profession. I understand. Live on the internet, I got you, but I don't talk, apparently. No. Okay. So um, you do this, and all they tell me for this whole audition is you do a ritual dance, and then you stab this girl who's tied up. I'm like, man, that's okay. I guess that's what I'd do. <laughs> so, uh, but they don't tell you anything, like, you know, a ritual dance? I could river dance, you know, just pick something. <laughs> you know, what, what exactly do you do with that? So I went in completely cold, and as I'm driving out, I'm like, man, I should give myself some props, because I, 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 I got nothing. I have no idea what the music's going to be. I don't have a ritual dance that I regularly do. The Macarena would be weird. So I, on the way out, I'm like, well, in that case, I've got to get a tight white T-shirt. I'm going to take what I have, which is a machete. So I grab a machete, wait, put on a white T-shirt. Wait. I'm going to grab what I have, which is a machete. <laughs> Don't you have one? <laughs> by the door? In case you're attacked by bamboo? <laughs> You know, so go on. So uh, I'm thinking I, I should do something. I should I should do something. Some ritual people always do ritual things. Uh, I should have some kind of symbolic act. So um, you know I've been in the Marines, so I know how to spin a sword. So I'm like, well, I can work with this machete if if they want some kind of sword play or knife work or something. I have no idea what the scenario is, except that this is imaginary tied-up woman that I'm going to stab after doing a dance, which is already already. <laughs> He's already out of my day, you know? And so I'm driving past her right in, and I'm like, red makeup. I'll get some lipstick. I'll begin my thing by covering my hand with red, and I'll slap it on my white T-shirt. <laughs> Doom. Uh, on my white T-shirt, and I'll have a handprint, and then I'll pull it down my face. Scary. Huh? It's like claw marks down your face of red and blood, and then I'll spin my sword, and everyone will go, ah, what the hell? And um, so that's what I have. I, I, I end up going, and I, get, I buy a, I don't know much about lipstick, um, surprisingly enough, but I buy Miss Clairol Maxi, uh, Miss, Miss Maybelline, you know, and that thing about, you know, it doesn't kiss off, they're not kidding. <laughs> I don't know what they make this stuff out of, but it's unbelievable. <laughs> So I buy some of this because it looks like blood color. It doesn't say blood color on it, though, which would have been awesome. Blood by Maybelline. And I have a machete and I have a white t-shirt. And I go there and I get to this place and there's seven of us sitting in there. And we all look like we could have been from the same family. You know, an awful family. 
but from the same one. And uh, I go in there, and I'm, I'm basically going to be the fourth or fifth one in. There's two more after me. And we all still have the same line. You know, and I'm thinking, well, if you get a call back for doing a line, you go back and you reproduce it the way you did it. Because now you're going to do it for the, you know, not that the casting director does the first one. Now you're going to do it for the producers and the director. This is, this is for the show, man. So reproduce what you did because that's what they expect. And if you want an adjustment, you ask for that. Would you like an adjustment, especially if you screw up? You know? And so I hear him going in, and I hear a kind of faint music. Like, ding, 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 ding. I was like, that doesn't sound like ritual dance music. But all I could hear in there was laughing. You know, the producer and the director was laughing. I don't know what these guys were doing, but they all came out smiling. And of course, this, the, the, the way out is the psych out. You look at all your competition, you're like, <laughs> have a great time in there. I just got that part. He's got that part. Go home. You suck. And so, you know, you're doing the, everyone's doing the psych out as they come out, like it didn't matter. Hey, have a great time. And I'm like, oh, crap. They loved him. And they loved that guy who looks like the same guy who looks like me, and then, you know, now it's, it's the number five, and all I've heard is this faint music in the background and everyone laughing the whole time. So I go in there with my little thing, I'm like wearing my t-shirt, and my, <laughs> I didn't come dressed for much, and they're, they're wearing all kinds of, you know, some people really dress up for parts, and I never bring props, I never dress up for the actual part, I just come as myself, and I hope the casting director is wise, but, um, and they're coming out wearing, you know, kind of weird clothing, and wherever they find Tibetan monk stuff. You know, those serial-killing monks. <laughs> so I go in, and Pat Moran's there, and she's like, you know, she's always business. She's like, hey, how you doing? I said, I'm great. Um, I put my stuff down, and they go, and they're like, and they hand me this, this bowl of flour and a candle. I'm like, okay. And they're like, oh, you brought your own props. You can, you know, everyone's been using these, but, you know, use your own. I'm like, okay and uh, do the line first, so I do, you know, Detective Shepard. Boom, my one line. And uh, then they say, okay, and now, I forget the producer's name, but she's gonna act as the woman, and she's gonna put her hands over her head, and she's the tied up uh, victim, and you are going to do your dance, and at the end, you're going to, uh, you know, make a stabbing motion of some kind. I'm like, okay. And uh, they began to play this music, which, you know, I personally would not ritually murder anyone to. <laughs> but it wasn't my choice. And so I, I just grabbed a handful of flour and I threw it up, take out the lipstick, cover my hand with red, pull it down my face, slap it on my, 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 my white T-shirt. Everything's going perfectly. I can't see my face, of course, but the handprint comes off nicely. And then I turn around, and they hadn't really realized that I had a machete in the bag with me. So I turn around, I pull this thing out, and I just start spinning it. I'm spinning this machete and dancing around like I'm, you know, coked up on Red Bull. <laughs> and at the end, I just plant my legs, and I'm really accurate with knives. But they don't know. <laughs> I just plant my legs, and I'm holding, you know, I'm holding a blade right in one hand, and I'm sliding it through, stopping exactly short of her by inches. But I know I can stop short by, it's like, oh, that's a lot of space, really. For swords, you know, <laughs> it needs to go more. <laughs> so I just lunge it three times. And <laughs> I haven't realized that no one's been laughing the whole time. 
because you know you're in your own little. You got to shut yourself off from your surroundings, you know. And uh, and she screams, falls backwards, hands down. I I, st I kind of stop and like, okay, you know, the, the music gets clicked off, and I look back, and there's the producers, Pat Moran, the camera assistant. When they always film the the, the uh, auditions, they're all looking at me as if. Perhaps I've gone too far. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm a crazy person. <laughs> and uh, and I re I've realized this mid-stride because I turn around and I've already horrified the person that I was lunging at. But I turn and, and, I, and I realize, you know, because anyone is perceptive enough to realize the, the expression of complete horror. Um, which was replicated on everyone's face. And so I, 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 I said, and the camera assistant, just a young kid, oh, he, he has his hand up next to the camera, not on it, and he, in this small, faint voice, goes, I uh, didn't record that. <laughs> and for, and for, you know, for future arrest records, I was like, thank God. <laughs> But it gave me a moment. I was like, would you like an adjustment? <laughs> and Pat Moran in this great voice just goes, no. <laughs> Thanks. That's it. And I said, well, thank you for the opportunity. And I walked out. And of course, I have flour on my head. That's fallen from my poof of flour. I have a handprint in blood on my shirt. And apparently, my face was you know, covered with Maybelline. And uh, you know the other two guys were like looking at me walking out, and I, I didn't I didn't even have to psych out. I'm just like you know, go now. And and then I realized you know in the next three hours I couldn't wash it off. I was just like, <laughs> I took off four layers of of you know whatever whale spleen they used to make makeup, <laughs> and it just would not come off. And I'm thinking you know I just blew my only shot. I blew it so badly that I might need a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Who's ever had to get a lawyer after an audition, you know? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, about an hour later, I get a call. Hey, you're our guy. <laughs> it's like the director loved that. <laughs> what I didn't realize was that, you know, of the shock and horror that I thought, he was actually smiling. It was just curled. <laughs> he was actually so happy. But he just had a different way of, you know, his smile didn't look like a smile smile. So, uh, so that was my intro into playing the inter internet serial killer on Homicide. And then they brought me back. I was the last Homicide on the show in the eighth, seventh or eighth season. Uh, they asked um, the guy who plays Bayless, like, who should we bring back? Of all the villains we've had over these, uh, these seven years, uh, and he said, bring back that serial killer guy. <laughs> And so I came back, and then he killed me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so fitting in, and that, that part is in the book. The actual playing, um, the playing of the uh, of the corpse is in there, in one of the chapters. You know, I think what I long I'm, story. I'm, Sorry. Well, it, no, it's it's hysterically funny. I think what I've learned by it is that you're a very apt mimic. You're a very observant uh, person who 
can look at a, a piece of rock over here and one over here and figure out how they might fit together. You can look at somebody, their gestures, their motions. I know you do imitations of me because you leave voicemail messages trying to do my voice. And you think I don't know, but I do know. And, I, and it's all of a piece. It's like when you read Great Expectations, somehow you figured out as you sat between those walls of insulation, uh, how to write this book. And I think, if anything, that's a really, um, that's part of your genius. But I wanted to ask you like if you that. would <clears throat> just do us the favor to even display that genius even more by just maybe reading a short section in the book in the voice of Christopher Walken. Wouldn't everyone <laughs> like to see that? My favorite accent done in the absolutely the wrong part. Still, how many, of you, how many of you have seen Highlander? With Sean Connery? When he plays a Spaniard? <laughs> but his line, he's a, he's a wonderful line. In a, in a heavy Scottish you know, accent, he says, you should be a Spaniard, like me. <laughs> like, I was cue on that moment. <laughs> And I've said that, like, I've said that on a radio at war. You know, just every time. Wait, you said this in Iraq? Yeah. I, I, I've also used lines from Star Wars in, in Iraq. You know. The generator will be down in moments. You may begin your landing. You know, these things just throw people off a little bit once in a while when things weren't tense. But uh, Christopher Walken does something wonderful. He makes everything into a poem. I was talking about how you break up a sentence and isolate words. Like, he'll just stop in sentences. Just stops. He'll hang on one word and then continue the sentence. So, um, I hadn't planned on, on doing this from a particular part, but <laughs> it's going to really make light of something I'm probably writing seriously about. <laughs> I don't really think it matters what page. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> you unbelievable bastard. He got me. Yeah, well, <clears throat> you're the one who brought the chairs out. I just thought I had you. <laughs> that was Ella and Jacqueline. <laughs> All right. Hi. How are you doing? This is from Bone. In high school football, we were sent onto the field and told to be brave. <laughs> we knew that winning was better than losing. We thought of our physical selves in a singular sense, not composed of parts, the bones, veins and muscles would join beneath our skin, the complication of our anatomy was invisible. I remember nothing of the mumps, chicken pox, or rheumatic fever except lost school days and bed and ginger ale. Ailments just seemed forgettable. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
brought it out, now I can't put it back. <laughs> no. We matter. When we were on that tour Stupid with... Anyway. Uh, okay. <laughs> Chris, it's enough. I can't. <laughs> can't do it. <laughs> we were... We were on this, uh, when you're doing that speaking with Phil. Like a monkey. <laughs> dance, monkey, dance. <laughs> we were having lunch with Phil Caputo, <laughs> who uh, is a fan of uh, Brando and uh, wrote about the great book, Rumor oh, War. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Ben almost put Phil in the hospital because he'd taken a bite of his uh, <laughs> uh, club sandwich and he started doing Brando in Apocalypse Now and Phil inhaled the sandwich, started choking in the booth. And Ben is narrating his death by choking. <laughs> if a man's gonna die, a man's gonna die. I'm not going to stop it. I'm not going to help him. I'm going to watch. All right. <laughs> you take it from here. <laughs> Bring Chris back. We'll be here all night. I'll be reading 320 pages. You want to go to some questions? We should uh, maybe take some questions all from right. people have them. The world is revealed. By the way, those of you who don't have silver or gold, carefully peel them from your chairs, by the way, on your way out. You'll be able to redeem them at the uh, hallway area with our fine group of volunteers, which will give you the color-coded prizes you have won. Uh, there's also blue ones. The blue ones are taken, and Tracy and I uh, took the only vacation I think we'll ever have. Uh, we went to London uh, in 2001 after I directed a disaster of a film. And um, I couldn't help but get into the, the dirt. And the only place you could kind of dig in London was in the Thames, which is a tidal river which goes down. And the edges are revealed deeper and deeper. Nobody walks into the muck because it's mucky. But that's where the stuff is because everyone walks in the other spot. So I went and picked up hundreds of small fragments from the 1600s through the 1800s of pipe stems, which is in the book, you'll discover. Highly recommend it. Um, these pipe stems were broken off into little fragments, and um, I washed them in bleach because I was told that they had the plague. And, um, and now you have them. I brought them back. <laughs> so if you have a blue sticker, you will get a nice fragment of a pipe you can never smoke. <laughs> because I believe in your health. I'm here to help. So that's that. And if you don't have any stickers on your, don't, don't get sad. You'll get something uh, from the Iraq War. I brought back a number of the posters which Psychological Operations was dropping and using around the communities because, of course, most of them couldn't read and they thought paper was a great way to start fires. So they all disappeared briefly, you know, very quickly. And as the word changed, they start to throw away the older posters and burn them. And I, I took a bunch of them back with me. And anyone who uh, doesn't have one of the other things, go up forward and pick out one of the posters from Iraq. These are from 2003, um, and they're kind of cool. Hey, we have a question, anyone. If you do, um, just stand and say your first name. For me or for Chris? 
please, and please wait for the microphone until it comes to you. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, Ben, we've got to come back to the issue that Doug raised, and we didn't come back to it. Ben. ben. Ah, sorry. Uh, the hair. All right. So, yeah, I mean, it's so different. We were doing so well. I, I know, but we've got to come back to this. So what did it really mean to you when you had to cut it off? And then what are your plans for the future? I just want a little bit of self-analysis here. Uh, You're talking about Ben. I could write a whole book about my hair. But In wait, fact, wait, wait, tell everyone, you, you grew up a long ponytail. After well, I didn't grow a ponytail. I kept it in a ponytail. I grew awesome hair. <laughs> I mean, it had magical powers. I was... I was undeniable with my hair. I stopped, after, after Generation Kill, I was like, you know what? I've had, <laughs> I went from being a Marine, which is you know, a bad haircut for 16 years, to being in The Wire, which accentuated my bad haircut, to being in Generation Kill, which returned me to my bad ha haircut to play a Marine again. And then I said, you know what? That's it. I can't play these roles over and over again as you know, military psycho cop. I want to play at least one time where I'm the, the zookeeper who's having a good time, you know? So uh, I grew, started growing my hair out. I had this plan. I wanted to be part of, uh, we had a biking film that we wanted to do, which, you know, come on. They give you an ax and say, be a berserker. That's just absolute abject play for me. And, um, and I was also, I wanted to do this 80s hair, hair band film, which I'm still gonna do someday by Dan, but I have to do it quickly before I lose my singing voice. So I started just growing it out. I just said, that's it. I've had enough bad haircuts. I'm not going to trust anyone to this. And um, Can I tell you, though, there's about a two-month period in there where you look like uh, the guy in Wayne's World, uh, Mike Myers. I mean, it was really bad. You have to go through a phase. Yeah. No, actually, everyone around you has to go through that phase because yeah. they don't have to look at you. Touché. Yeah. But yeah, I, I went through the I went through the the bad shaggy phase, and I went through the George Harrison phase, and then I went through the uh, you know you really should seek a stylist phase, and then I went into you know lighters would start near me. These people would just reach in their pockets and light things when I walked past, and uh, so I kept it in the ponytail because otherwise um, it would start riots. You know. Okay. So, but when you went on your book tour, what did your publicist tell you? Oh, yeah. A publicist looked at this hair, which, of course, was mostly just jealousy. And they said, you know, that's not going to play on television. It's going gonna, it's gonna to frighten people. It's going to make you look like some kind of, you know, 80s hairband drug running nut job. And, uh, and I said, no, it's not. It's going to sell this book. This hair sells books. This hair does everything that anything could possibly do for me. But they didn't believe. And so at the last minute, it turns out the first piece of news that I was going to get, and I never thought this was going to be, I thought, my, I thought it was going to be NPR, you know, I thought it was going to be on, uh, on all those shows. It's Fox and Friends. <laughs> Have you ever watched Fox and Friends? Not a lot of long hair on that show. And I said, if you have long hair, it's going to hurt the book. And they said it's so mean. They knew that for the book, I would give all. I was about to head out on a 50-state book tour. Hurt the book? And they all rallied together in a little collective hushing of, of what was true about my hair, which is the opposite. But they were afraid, and so a few days before I went on Fox, 
I cut it. I carried it with me in case I needed it. I had it braided, and I cut the braid off, and I carried it in my suitcase to my everywhere. Were you ever pulled over with your hair in <laughs> Sir, a bag? whose hair is this? <laughs> no, I, you actually I got carried... one speeding ticket in Indiana, thank you. And I sped the entire country, by the way. So Indiana sucks. <laughs> but you anyway, really, back to scene. Wait, wait, wait. You really carried your ponytail around in your suitcase in yes, your book tour? absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You don't kill your spirit animal. In Texas, you kill your spirit animal. You kill other people's spirit animals. But you protect your own, you know? All right. Guarded Karen, does that, does that answer your question, so, Karen? So I, had, no, so I had this hair. So I lost the hair, which was, you know, horrifying to me. And then I realized, you know, things always happen in threes. And this is something you should all remember. The triptychs. It's dangerous. The triad. Um, I'm going through South Dakota where Little Bighorn went down. And our most famous long-haired general lost his life. Custer, who was a notorious bastard, survived everything throughout all the wars, all the t no matter what, outnumbered, all his men killed, he would somehow find the one limping horse and get out. Well, the day before he rode out to Little Bighorn to be killed, he cut his hair because it was hot, gave it to his wife. So Samson, number one, Custer, number two. <laughs> These are things you need to worry about. I right. shouldn't have listened. Next yeah, question. Margaret. Hi. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank you for restoring the old Kurtz farm instead of tearing it down. It had good bones. <laughs> But uh, I wondered, since I was raised there, what um, possessed you to locate in Reed City at that particular spot? Good question. Um, my wife got the only history job in the country that wasn't in Georgia, in, <laughs> at Ferris State University in Big Rapids. And I did the recon, which was I went to Big Rapids, and uh, I decided that that was a place I probably couldn't live. I needed some space, and uh, so I started driving in circles, and you know, I called back, and I found this farm, and it was the only farm at the time that was for sale, and uh, it was 88, straight 80, you know, out the back. It had been diminished much from its original size, but it had a gorgeous hay barn, you know, hand-hewn, you know, log, you know, beams in it and everything, and I'm pretty easily seduced by a good barn, so uh, loved the barn, we loved the land, the land was beautiful. And, uh, and the house was what appeared to be straight <laughs> uh, when you looked at it from the outside. And uh, we didn't really know the condition, honestly, on the inside. It never would have passed any kind of inspection. This is before the collapse of the housing market, by the way, and the, uh, the lending situation. We could never buy this house now. Um, and so you know, we looked at these things, and, and we wanted a, a place that had a lot of space. We wanted a big, you know, a real house that had been built by hand by people from solid wood and, um, and a place that we could restore in some way because it had been let go for years and was in kind of a, a decreased state. And um, I just kind of looked at the land and like I always do with films and photos, you know, I kind of see it done. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is going to be amazing after I'm dead. 
And so, uh, you know, Tracy came and she walked the land with me and we're like, man, this is awesome. This is just beautiful. We went in the backfield and I kind of, it was the field that sold it, I think, more than the house. We're like, oh, we have to live in a house too. Um, we can't live in the field. So that was, that was what drew us to that particular property and, um, and we bought it and we, seven years, we still don't have a, f a complete kitchen, but, uh, you know, we, we make small, small steps in progress. You still have your burn pile in back? Yes, I have a bad luck pile, which is all the wood that hasn't been painted or treated that I've taken out of any of the structures or grounds. Um, we took down a tractor barn and a shed and a milk shed and a, and a, uh, a chicken coop and just all kinds of stuff. We got to the house. And what do you call this pile? The bad luck pile. Because someday I will burn it and be rid of bad luck. Huh. Should have done it last year. <laughs> Someone else. But you'll all be invited. <laughs> We'll go hi. up to the balcony. Okay, hi. Hi, I think briefly in the book you mention a brother very briefly. A what? Do you, do you have a brother? Yeah. You do, okay. So um, can you tell us a little bit about him? Because um, <laughs> you mention him like, that. I mean, like one sentence or something like that in the book. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people get hung up on that because they, uh, we're used to the standard conventional memoir, which usually is about the family is usually about the drama, the, uh, you know, the interpersonal relationships therein. And it's usually, you know, it's usually trying to make the writer of the memoir this, uh, this character in a group of characters. My book is about my perspective. So really, the only thing I can be honest to is what I see, what I think in seeing it. And everyone else, and my wife and daughters are barely in there for more than a sentence or two. My brother's in there. You know, I, I mention them when they're present in the thing I'm seeing, but I don't know what they're thinking. So to go on and develop any of these other characters really makes them, uh, you know, addendums that don't relate to the narrative of the book, putting you into the landscape. They're part of a population of people mm -hmm. who are there, but, you know, I, I, anything I would write that, that they're thinking is fiction. You know, any, to put any of those things in their heads is fiction, and to write about them in a larger place to, to expand them um, beyond their relationship to the substances that I'm talking about, you know, my relationship to them, is to, to make a distraction. So they are peeled away entirely because um, this is about me seeing things, my perspective, giving it to you specifically. So looking for those things is, you know, is usually what other memoir answers. Mine is a kind of a bigger memoir than that. It goes for the larger discussion about mortality, about our place in the world, about our place in time, and about the materiality of the earth, the composition of not just our, our landscape, but of us. Um, and I just give you my view of that, and I stay on message. I don't, I don't waver on that. To do, to do that, to describe everyone around me, I have lots of friends, they're all fantastic, um, and I have a well, gorgeous, wonderful family, uh, that's a that's a whole other kind of book. That's doing something you know, I'm not I'm not trying to do in this book at all. So I mention them when they are there because they they are present as part of what I see, as part of what is there. But but I can't do much more. And I only go into my parents a little bit because of the scenarios in which my parents play heavily in my early years. You kind of have a have to have a visual sense of who they are. So I give you a visual kind of feeling for them. Because they, you know, they, were, they were a heavier presence in that, in that particular time 
to begin that discussion about those substances, and usually about trying to steer me away from that which I became. You know, they're always trying to keep me out of danger. There was a question over here earlier. You sort of answered it. I was going to ask about your parents, um, and you said that you're not going into a lot of the specifics. I was curious about you becoming a Marine and your parents and their role and what they believed and how, how, that, the, how you met, I guess, in the middle with that, or, or what, what were some of the, were there keen moments of understanding, <laughs> or was it, um, you know, I, I don't know, anything that you might want to add to that. And I just have one other little thing. There's an empty chair with a coin on it. In, All in you. Front. <laughs> yeah, I have no problem with, uh, with collateral theft. <laughs> if someone had a, the, you know, the lack of commitment to leave a chair empty to this evening, the spoils go to those who have arrived. Um, so to... What was the question? I have a short-term memory issue. Um, <clears throat> How did you and your parents yeah, meet on the issue? The, uh, I, I was at Vassar. It was my junior year. I was uh, you know, the uncelebrated president of my class that year. Uh, I was making a lot of art, <clears throat> and I chose to go to the Marine Corps Officer Candidate School for the summer, which is 10 weeks of being beaten. And the intention of Officer Candidate School is to get rid of you, not to build you up as a team. That's what boot camp is for. They want to keep everyone at boot camp. They wanted to get rid of us. And, um, and I appreciated that um, because that's the challenge I sought. But there was during a parent's weekend that, uh, you know, that the question came up. And that's in the book, actually, was that moment when they came down to Vassar to say, so what are you doing for the summer? Uh, are you doing something other than working in the lumber yard? You know, are you going to go to work in some place in New York, are you gonna work for an artist? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to officer candidate school, and he thought it was a corporate program of some kind. <laughs> I was like, well, it does have core in it. Um, and I told him, and you know, there was one of those, those stretched silences, which may have only been for a few heartbeats, but felt like it might have been for about a day. You know, my parents had been like, you know, the Marine Corps. We finally got him to Vassar. You know, three years into Vassar, it's, it's, it's over. All those impulses that we were worried about, solved. He's an artist now. And then I walk right into the open arms of the Marine Corps and of all forces to choose the Marines. Um, but like with my youth, you know, they, they were war, Vietnam War protesters. They didn't want to raise a, a warrior. And so they kept weapons from me for many years which is the, how the book begins, really. And the first line of the book is, I was not allowed to have a gun. <laughs> you know? Um, and then over time, they realized that this martial instinct that I had wasn't something I was putting on. It wasn't something they were giving me. It was a native impulse. And it was something that they could make a choice about. Quelt, you know, they, could, they could crush it, or they could allow it to exist in its native form. And they eventually came around to this, you know, let him be who he is, which is that great gift that parents can give you. Is, you know, they want you to be something, but they let you be the other thing, the thing that you are. And um, so that was always growing. And then, of course, I went off to Vassar and was distracted by other things. But I came back. I came back to it. And then afterwards, you know, they weren't fans of the war. They protested it. My wife and, and 
my parents protested the war as I went to it because, you know, they were exercising their citizenship um, and their opinion uh, and, and bless their bravery for that. But, um, but I went where my Marines were sent because that's what I do. I know that's the thing that I signed up for. And uh, they weren't a fan of the war, but they were a huge fan of the Marines. And, you know, because they loved me. You know, that's, the, that's the, the thing I always knew. The support would always come back if this was something that wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't falsetto, that it was really something I was committed to. They'd have to, in some ways, embrace whoever I became. And that was one of the things I became, was a Marine. So they were very proud. Uh, my mother's father had been a Marine, and of course that didn't help my situation because he'd almost been killed in Guadalcanal. So that was, the, uh, that was how they framed the scenario. Uh, but they kept me from being killed in the, uh, in the roller skating rink. <laughs> Let's take uh, just a few more, and then I'd like you to end this, Ben, by reading the poem. Okay. Are you done? Yeah. yeah, yeah okay, okay. I was showing while sitting how I could not outrun a fire on wheels, because it would be like a cartoon character. I, 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 I. Let's take uh, two more quick questions, and then read this poem, and okay. then we'll go out to the lobby and sign books. Anyone else? Hi, Doug. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Let's, let, Shirley, go ahead, and Speak then we'll go to Speak at the same time, and we'll see who's yep. more articulate. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've gotten back to a lighter note, and uh, we heard you uh, at International Affairs Forum last spring. You spoke on... On, uh, the Iraq. preeminent Jack Siegel running yes, shop. Yes, yes, yes. And Karen and, in the back. And Karen. <laughs> and us. <laughs> and it was a very serious speech. And at the end, during the question and answer period, you were talking about uh, coming, coming back and all the post-traumatic syndrome and so forth. And then we rushed out and bought your book. <laughs> we saw your uh, exhibit at the Dennis Art Museum. And then tonight, uh, maybe it's the hair, but this is, this is a different person. Are you sure, Doug, is this the Benjamin Bush? For tonight, and I this thought, is who you... For tonight. I thought maybe this was part of his... Hair. I remember you saying to me personally, I was sitting in the front row, I take it one day at a time. And maybe some of this... Dropping chairs from the... That wasn't me. That was Ella and Jacqueline. I've said this many times. <laughs> okay. Anyway, that's my question. Well, uh, you know, I'm a lot of people. And I choose a lot of genres, and I move around a lot because, uh, you know, I think we all have our moments. And um, I could have come in and done this, done this straight, and you got the same information in some way. Uh, but uh, I, 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 do, I do shift. You know, I, I have... I have <laughs> I have mood swings, um, which, you know, kind of take me from, I'm always kind of dealing with the same territory, but you can, you can laugh at death. I mean, that's what I've done my whole life. Ah, you know, you, you can't take me. You know, I'm going to have to give myself to you. You can't take me. Um, I'm going to fight you, uh, which is what the, the great thing about the human spirit, you know, is we're defiant. And it's that defiance, I think, of being categorized. I mean, this book, this was a nightmare to my publicists. How do you categorize this book? It's a memoir. 
That's true. But it doesn't do the stuff memoir generally does. It's got some humorous moments in it, but it's not a comedy. It's a meditation. It's philosophical. It's experiential. It's scientific. It's anthropological. It's doing all kinds of stuff all at the same time, all through vignettes, which could just be something I'm just telling you here. I could just tell you a story like I write a story. Um, and that's, this is me. <laughs> this is how I see all the time. I can see the entire universe in a moment. And I can see nothing for miles in Texas. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just where I am and, and what, I'm, what I'm channeling. And uh, I just happen to have a huge comet trail of stuff that I'm never sure what's going to be, uh, what's going to rise at that particular moment. You know, um, I'm also a huge, I mean, I'm huge into music. I don't make music, but I wish I did. And if I could, that'd be what I'm doing right, that'd be what I'm doing next. You know, what the future holds is, I don't know. You know, I, I set off on a trail, but I pick up everything along the way. I'm very distractible that way. At the same time, I have tremendous focus. I always get there, but I'm always carrying a hell of a lot more than I should have brought. I think my advice to uh, the, the, the studio today was, you know, if you're packing, just bring underwear and clean socks because everything else is extra weight. Because you'll fill that pack along the way. That's the thing about travel, about movement. Even if you're walking through your own house, you're picking up all these different things. There's different bits of evidence of, of your whole life and of others, you know. My parents are alive because I can remember them, which means I once again have outwitted mortality. You know, my parents aren't mortal. I win. And I'll be alive after my death, too. For one reason, this will survive for a bit. Maybe some of this will rub off on someone who will remember it. They'll never have known me, but that's just fine. If the message got to the person it was intended to, that's the mission of language. So that's why I use language sometimes. Last question is Doug, for Doug, yeah. actually. Us in the balcony have watched this whole evening, and uh, you actually like the chair now, correct? You, you have, you've been sitting back. No, I actually don't like this chair. No, no, <laughs> no, no. The last couple of questions, you have really enjoyed the chair. Come on, okay, admit right. it. Oh, thank you, Todd. That was great. <laughs> uh, you want to read that poem? We'll close out here. <laughs> How about uh, one more question? What time is it? Is it tomorrow? It's tomorrow. Uh, read an that, oldie but a goodie. Remember when we were old? That's what Benji Rogers used to start off his concerts with. Here's an oldie but a goodie. Remember when we were old? I always loved that line. I don't know where he stole it from, but I, I always quote it to him. Um, and this, I, I can, can I read two pieces? A sure, poem yeah. and a small piece of the book? Yeah. Is that legal? That's great, yeah. All right, then. Um, this is a poem, I, you know, we have, we have daughters, fantastic, magical daughters, Kira and Alexandra, and um, I've never been so surrounded by pink and, and bodies. There's like dolls everywhere, and they appear in the strangest places, in the strangest positions, and it's a little horrifying sometimes. You walk out in the morning, and you're kind of tired, and there's this massacre lying around you, and, um, and we live in a place where I look out the windows a lot. I kind of... I'm always watching, watching the outside. And this poem came out of these two things. Everything in it really kind of happened, but it's been taken into poetry 
into the poetic form, rearranged in a way. When you look at it, it's about five sentences long, really. But I've changed the way it, it's order. You know, it's, it looks like this now. And uh, when you read it, it kind of breaks into those small pieces. So I'm just going to read this little, this little poem, and then I'll read kind of what I'm talking about, how it sometimes creeps into my prose. I think my poetry disciplines my prose because it makes me really throw away a lot of excess language. But also sometimes, you know, there's this movement that words do, this balance that they find. It's kind of like this equilibrium of stones on a beach. You know, they kind of come to level. And uh, so sometimes this kind of writing works its way into this book, even though most of it's very sparse prose in the end. I want to be clear, so I get, I get less and less language in there. <clears throat> it's called March. <clears throat> March! <laughs> the room feels combustible. Cluster flies dead on the window sills, and I am awake too early. The floor covered with dolls, killed, smiling in their best dresses. Glitter sparkling. Outside, the snow is not made of crystals anymore. Cream, maybe. Titanium white. Soaked like paper swollen back into pulp. Washed down by warm air. Exposing rocks. The thorns of the land all pushing through. We could always see the fence posts, but they are darker in this damp as if marking the graves of dairy cattle covered in cold milk. A rabbit lives under the dumpster, too many bones in the frozen ground to burrow, its manic path revealed each morning, stamped like woodprints on wallpaper. It knows what to look for, everything buried, remembers where it has already searched, predators watching from the trees, inching closer, fascinated, all of us trying to read a pattern in the tracks. The hawk is not circling, is not like the spinning vultures sour with hope. No, the hawk is hunting, turning its head and flying straight towards murder, beautiful, unsentimental. All the rust that dripped into the soil rising up onto the metal left out for the winter like old blood remembering to circulate. The neighbor is smoking a cigar and drilling into the sugar maples, hanging white buckets and bleeding the trees. Too soon, it seems, but he must know something about the prophecy that I missed during the night while the rabbit circled the yard and the hawk descended in its sleep. Hmm. Talking about a lot of different things. I'm talking about, you know, some common observations that we could all just have seeing children's toys in the hallway, but allying them with the larger forces of, of hunters. Um, what page are you going to read from? Say again? What page are you reading from? I think I'm going to read from Ash, the beginning of Ash, which, um, which is a chapter you've got to be ready for when you get to it. Read them in order. <laughs> but uh, you know, this is after you've already gotten through the whole book, really. This is the last chapter before the, the, uh, the epilogue. And um, this... This kind of, uh, at the very end of this, of this first part of the chapter, I slip into that pacing of language. The fact that a, a, you know, a poem can give you these bursts of observation, these little brief moments which paint a picture, even of a car ride. Um, so here is the beginning of Ash. 
Ash is a substance without a real attachment to air or firmament. It is not part of the fundament or earth. It exists only as aftermath, a product of fire and tragedy, a stain on the ground and in the wind. It is made by the particular destruction of life down to its elemental carbon, our black core. Something has to die absolutely to become ash. Pompeii was buried in hot ash, hot enough to seal people in its mass and then burn them so completely that only the empty volume of their bodies remained, hollow spaces in the settled embers. Plaster has been poured into these molds by archaeologists, restoring the last form that the dead had assumed before disappearance. We know the most about Roman life because of this city. The substance of absolute destruction preserved it. It was my chore to take out the metal bucket of ash that my father carefully dug from our cast iron wood stove with a small shovel once a week. The ash had its own pile beside the compost, but both decreased in size as we added to them. I didn't think much about the ash as I carried it out into the snow. It looked like a crushed wasp's nest in the galvanized pail. I would dump it on the snow and watched as it melted its way to the older ash underneath. In the summer, I spent long days digging in the abandoned ash dumps that still held treasures around Poolville, a small town I grew up in central New York. Pieces of china dolls, glass medicine bottles, and the brittle lids from canning jars would emerge as I carefully excavated the household garbage pits. Most of them had already been discovered and dug hastily by two brothers. They'd made a name for looting and selling the antique bottles that they found, but they were sloppy and broke off as much as they carried off. I was usually left to sift through what they had missed. The ash left iridescent tarnish in the bottles, but protected them in soft, damp piles. I found marbles, chipped teacups, rusty razors, and porcelain doorknobs. I didn't consider what else was in the ash. The fires and stoves and horrors of the town had burned everything down. The forests that were now fields had emptied into the endless burning. Love letters, journals, books, underwear, and the secrets of families went into the fires along with newspapers, broken plates, and animal bones. They were all there in the ash that fell through my fingers as I searched for the objects that were still recognizable. I rarely found what I truly sought. I remember making the trip with my father to the nearby college town of Hamilton for the newspapers. It was an adventure to see the landscape every time. In the winter, I wondered what lay covered under bumps in the snow. I imagined them to be the ash dumps of vanished homesteads. Almost all of the remaining houses along the road had fire st firewood stacked on their porches and a trail of smoke from their chimneys. I could smell the wood burn through the vents of our car as we passed. I remember it clearly. The shadow of our car rippled as we moved, changing with the ground, flickering on the stalks of saplings, telephone poles, and fences. We were like soot on the snow, deformed but recognizable, a child's charcoal drawing of a station wagon. I can see myself, small, in the lit frame of the rear window as it expanded and shrank on the slopes with impossible suddenness, and my father in front, driving, changing size, both of us something enough to block the sun as we passed over the countryside late in the afternoon like a cloud of smoke that was known to us. That sets up wow. the end. Go down, right? Yeah. Ben, that, that's beautiful writing. Um, you've given us a, literally gifts this evening. Um, <laughs> Claim them all. And it's 
a trait that I've noticed in you to always come and bring more, um, to leave the place with more than what was there before you arrived. It's really why you're such a terrific writer and a great person, and thank you for being here. And this book thank is you. terrific. Thank you all. Thanks for having me.